win, lose, or draw, we are going to keep building and keep pushing to be stronger than we've ever been because our lives literally are going to depend on it. What's up? Welcome to In the Thick. This is a podcast about politics, race, and culture from a POC perspective. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. And we're going to have fun-ish today because (laughs) joining us from Oakland, California is, yes, the Alicia Garza. She's Special Projects Director for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. She's an organizer. She's co-host of the Sunstorm podcast. Hello, BLM. Hello, Alicia. Good to have you on the show. (laughs) It's good to be here. Thank you so much for having us. And joining us from Chicago, Illinois, is Ai-Jen Poo. She's co-founder and executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. She's an organizer and co-host of the Sunstorm podcast. Welcome back, Ai-Jen. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Oh, my God. Mm. Oh, boy. No, it's getting right. I mean, every week it's like it could not possibly take another. Mm -hmm. No, And this is actually the shitstorm that we're going to be seeing for the foreseeable future. So... We do want to talk about the fact that the both of you are really two of the leading activists in this country, in this moment in history. Mm. You're involved with different movements, different organizations, whether it's Supermajority, which you both founded to help organize women in political power, or movements like Black Lives Matter, which Alicia, you were the co-creator of back in 2013. Now you're hosting a podcast. It's called Sunstorm. It's launched its new season just about a month ago. So congratulations. And I'm not sure anybody expected. <laughs> what timing. Right. The focus <laughs> of this election year would be on a global pandemic that has uprooted so many of us. Yeah. And really taken the hood off in terms of injustice and inequality. Yeah. Not that we were wearing any hoods, just saying. <laughs> Ooh, nice one. Wow. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, before we talk about all of that, we got a lot of emotions going on. Yeah. Because this was quite a weekend. Yes. You know, Trump contracted the virus, the same disease that has claimed over 209,000 lives in this country, a few of which I know. I, too, am a survivor. So, you know, I'm very personally affected by all of this. And not to say the least that this is somebody who was downplaying this virus for months. Right. And he was hospitalized at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, right outside of D.C. for a few days. I'm still trying to find reports that have any clarity, to be honest with you. Like it just goes from this to that contradiction, typical Trump administration message chaos in full gear. On Sunday, his medical team said that Trump's oxygen levels had dropped down twice. Also on Sunday afternoon, he decides to get into an SUV with other Secret Service agents, essentially exposing anyone who's near him, masked or not, to wave at supporters outside of the facility. Right. And the whole weekend was just like one wave of fighting misinformation. I actually tweeted out the United States of disinformation. Yeah. There's so much carelessness. The White House spokesperson, Kelly McEnany, just tested positive herself. Right. You know, the White House, the White House itself has become a COVID hotspot. Mm. So, Alicia... <laughs> like, yeah, no. it's like I knew you were coming here. Yeah, it's like over to the West Coast. <laughs> so, what was your weekend like, Alicia? And how are you processing 
what's going on, the way it's being handled, the fact that we are less than a month away. Mm-hmm. Take us to inside Alicia's brain mm. and heart. Well, inside my brain and heart is an interesting place to be these days. But I mean, I'll just start off by saying what a tragedy. I mean, just like BLM, COVID, otherwise known as the Rona, has been used as a political football Mm -hmm. in this election season. And what's at stake, just like Black Lives Matter, is real people who are desperate for relief, desperate for regulation and rules, not for the sake of interfering in anybody's life, but for the sake of making sure that we can all make it together. And, you know, I mean, this pandemic, I feel like has aged us all, you know, at least 50 years, but I'm old enough to remember. (laughs) Dude, I just had my hair colored a week ago and I looked today, I was like, are you kidding me? They're back already? (laughs) Right. Oh, wow. I'm like, I have new grays that I'm like, you know what? I earned those things. Um, I will say that, you know, for me, from where I'm sitting, I'm old enough to remember when we were all baking bread and planting gardens and saying, we're all in this together. But I think what we saw over, you know, the past few months is that we haven't all actually been in it together, that there has been a small group of people who have literally put hundreds of thousands of lives at risk. More than 200,000 people have died at this point merely to make a point. And that is heartbreaking. I also have loved ones who have died from the Rona. I have loved ones who have gotten sick from the Rona and it was all preventable. Mm. So in this moment, when I see this, you know, super spreader who is Mm. this president and I'm, I'm both watching the impetus, right? To say, oh my God, we've got to all send thoughts and prayers and all of these things. And sure, I don't wish this Rona on anybody. And at the same token, what will it take Mm. actually for people to say no more of this? This president has not provided any level of leadership in bringing this country back together again, whether it be the economic recession that we're in, whether it be this deep crisis in our democracy, this deep crisis where racial terror is being used in our communities, this deep crisis where people are getting sick and they don't have access to the things that they need to be well. Right. What is it going to take to get a leader and a, and a leadership that can bring us back together again, like a president and his administration is supposed to do? Mm. Mm. So, Ijen, I know that this weekend you made some amazing homemade, homegrown tomato sauce. We got behind the scenes reporting. (laughs) While you were doing that with the basil and the garlic and the olive oil, what were you saying to yourself about what this moment in history is with this insanity? (laughs) She's making Talk to us, Ijen. Actually, making tomato sauce is very meditative because you're Mm. sitting there Mm -hmm. and you're grating the tomatoes and getting the skin off. And it actually was much more involved than I thought it was going to be. But I was really thinking a lot about all the people whose lives have been upended. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now they just become data points, statistics, Mm. the numbers keep going up and you see the charts and you, you hear about the numbers. And if you think about 
each and every life Mm. behind those numbers Mm. and each and every livelihood that's been lost. I mean, just within the domestic workers alone, the number of workers who are essential workers, right? (laughs) Home care workers who've put their lives on the line to make sure that some of the people who are most vulnerable to the virus have what they need to survive. And meanwhile, their own kids are at home. And meanwhile, they earn poverty wages, barely enough to keep the lights on. Mm. And then they're losing their jobs without paid time off, without access to a safety net. I mean, just the impossible crises day after day that people are having to navigate. And, And that's for the people who survived. For every life lost... It's like the opportunity, the people they loved and the the hugs they didn't get to give their grandchildren or the, you know, the moments, the rituals they didn't get to experience. I mean, just kind of sitting with that this weekend was really profound to me because I think we've kind of gotten numb. Yes. You know, we've gotten kind of that 100,000 here, 100,000 there. But no, (laughs) this is massive. Uh The human cost of what we've just been through and continue to sit through day after day is just profound. Right. That's right. And you know what, Aichen? The way I woke up on Monday morning, thinking about the fact that this person is getting so many different treatments, he's getting this treatment, that treatment, this treatment, so, you know, so that he's getting better. Yeah. And I'm like, bro, like I Bruh. couldn't even, I couldn't even mm-hmm. leave my house because my legs hurt so much. And in order to get a test, I would have had to stand outside in the frigging cold. Mm. So I treated this with Tylenol and patience and <gasps> the love of my family. Oh my God. So the thought of that's where I'm just like, and I don't want to be feeling that way, but I'm like, like you, Aijin, these are people who I'm like, oh, pero es que Tio Mel should have been having Exactly. I was just going to bring you know? that up. The Latino USA podcast that Lily reported about her aunt and uncle. Over the next three days, since his two cardiac arrests, Matthew Mill's condition continues to deteriorate. On that third day, my cousins are together. They decide to have dinner at one of their houses. They let the kids go to the park. A phone call comes in to one of my cousins. Estela doesn't answer. It's an unknown number. But then that same phone number calls my other cousin's phone, Viviana. When she picks up, she realizes that it's my uncle's favorite nurse. She says they must go to the hospital. Things aren't looking good. They drive to the hospital. They pass through the COVID checks and are able to enter the room with just enough time to talk to my uncle. Everyone's crying. Everyone is saying their goodbyes. He's gone. I was thinking about Aijen's point about how we've become numb. And I listened to that podcast right after the president was diagnosed, right? And man, if I needed to listen to something, that was the one because it does bring up the real lies behind the numbers that I think we're forgetting. So Aijen, just so you know, it's a Chicago-based story mm. yeah. of indigenous people. Yeah, 
from Oaxaca Mm -hmm. who are Chicagoans, but they get infected and then they go back to be buried in their hometown. And it's an indigenous community that's being ravaged. Mm -hmm. It's quite beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that's happened in the political space with all this that I wanted to at least refer to is that Mitch McConnell is still going to push for this Supreme Court nomination of Coney Barrett, despite this outbreak, despite the White House (laughs) hotspot. And this is what Mother Jones reported, and I'm quoting, on Saturday, McConnell explained that the Senate's retreat would have no bearing on his party's plan to expedite Barrett's confirmation. The Judiciary Committee hearing on Barrett's nomination scheduled by Senate Judiciary Chairman Senator Lindsey Graham who got his ass kicked in the debate, I'm sorry, I'm not quoting Mother Jones there, for October 12th, in advance of the committee vote on October 22nd, will proceed as planned. So anyway, I don't even know, but... I just want to remind everybody that the House passed a bill called the HEROES Act months ago that includes protections for essential workers who are literally risking their lives to keep us safe and keep this economy going so that they could have hazard pay and other protections. It includes extending relief to the millions of working class families who are struggling right now and are worried about eviction, mm-hmm. literally mass evictions right. happening in this country, right. funding to state and local governments to keep everything from childcare going to transportation and other public services that are essential. And the Senate refused to come to the table for months on some basic, basic relief to alleviate the incredible suffering Mm. that people Mm. are going through in this country. Mm. Yeah. So let's talk about your podcast and it's called Sunstorm, where the both of you talk to women about how they find power amidst all the chaos in the United States today. And, And the HEROES Act is another example of sort of that ignorance that's happening. And you've had these incredible women organizers on the show so far from one of my faves. I'm a soccer nerd, Megan Rapino, <laughs> one of the best soccer players in the world. She helped lead mm-hmm. the U S into a world cup victory in 2019, but she is just such an amazing activist to Raquel Willis. Who's a powerful black trans activist and writer. So we want to talk about what it means to be an organizer in a time like this, because like we've all mentioned, we're less than a month away to the election and organizers, they're in the final stretch to get out the vote and to really gain electoral power for POC communities. But I want to point to something that Raquel said on one of your recent episodes about non-voters. I was talking about this with one of my friends the other day, and they rail on and on about people who don't vote. Mm-hmm. Like that is the thing that makes them the most angry about any election I'm like, oh, it's not the people who voting for (laughs) candidates that you don't care about. No, it's the (laughs) non-voters. First of all, do you really think railing on them is going to get them to do what you want them to do? That's right. So that's also a thing. But what grinds my gears a lot is these moments of demonstrations of electoral powers that people so easily gloss over how deadly the status quo is is for many. Mm -hmm. And so it's not enough to just say we're going to return to form. Most people actually need a complete 
change up, shift up of the form itself. Yep. And so I'm not satisfied with being upset or disappointed or angry at people who don't vote. So Alicia, talk to me about Raquel's point about this return to normalcy not being enough. And do you see this country headed into a shift in form, the idea of what she brought up? Well, that's up to us. And, you know, Raquel is one of my favorite thinkers and doers these days because she keeps it 100 percent real. I mean, at the end of the day, we do do the same pattern every election cycle. And it's a lot of why the work that Ijen and I do together, the work that I do at the Black Futures Lab, it's trying to intervene in that, this notion that, number one, the only time we should be talking to people about voting is when elections happen. Number two, that we should not simultaneously be working to transform how democracy works. And that actually the key motivator for our communities in so many ways is that people want their lives to be better. And I think we're all clear at a certain point that, you know, fundamentally, Things weren't great before the pandemic. <laughs> and yet right. here we are and we're telling people, right, which is true, this is a really important election cycle. And if you think things were bad before the pandemic, imagine how bad they're going to be after this election if we don't show up. But we also have to couple that with a plan and a vision for how it is that we are not just going to hold elected officials accountable, but what is the agenda? Right. And I think it's important. And I think what Raquel is bringing up here is that, you know, we shouldn't just say, yes, things are bad and eventually it'll get better. But first, just vote for these people. That actually is not a motivator. And we have to be able to kind of walk and chew gum at the same time right? while we also outline what is the plan to move an agenda that is bigger and better than it was the last time. And what is our plan to connect people to that agenda in between election cycles so that they can see victories along the way? If we don't have those victories along the way, but we keep telling people to show up, show up, show up. At a certain point, you're telling people that the sky is green and every time they look up, they see blue. <laughs> and so that that dynamic does have to change in order for more people to be involved more consistently right. and more powerfully. Right. So it's less transactional. And I'm thinking about women of color who organize and I think about their amazing capacity to really transform movements. And I'm actually thinking about my own mom who, when I was little, you know, takes <laughs> her four kids. Yeah. Takes her four kids out to see a protest demonstration in the middle of the civil rights era on the South side of Chicago. Mm. I'm thinking about Bree Newsom. That's right. You know, who after the Charleston church shooting in 2015 mm. took matters into her own hands by scaling the flagpole on the South Carolina state house grounds to take down that Confederate flag. I'm thinking about the is Huerta, you know, somebody who like still, still to this day is like, I'm going to change the world and then I'm going to go yeah. party until four in the morning. Um, <laughs> so true. <laughs> I know it's totally true. You know, I'm thinking about somebody who's a personal hero to me who people don't know. Mm. Her name is Carmelita Torres. Mm. In 1917, yep. she led the El Paso Juarez Bath riots mm. to resist the humiliating mm. and then daily procedure of gas baths where U.S. authorities would force Mexican immigrants on the border to strip 
there may have been cavity searches Ugh. sprayed with chemicals before being allowed into the country to do their jobs. Right. They were legal. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a clip from NPR where author David Romo talks about the aftermath of this precise moment. Unfortunately, not much happens after the bath rides in terms of, you know, Carmelita Torres has been called the Rosa Parks of the border, but Rosa Parks actually had an effect. The baths continue. The fumigations, in a sense, they get even worse. In 1917, there's 127,000 Mexicans that are deloused and fumigated at the border. And these fumigations go on for decades. Yeah, so when you all read my book, Once I Was You, Mm. You'll know why this this particular thing about the looking at the bodies of Mexicans, I'm about to use a slur because it's pertinent. What did they call us? What have they called us? What do we remain being called? Here's the slur, dirty Mexicans, right? We continue to see reports of fumigations and the use of chemicals in ICE detention facilities. And so this was a woman who resisted. I'm thinking about mm-hmm. the women forcibly sterilized in this Georgia detention facility, the woman, mm-hmm. black woman nurse who finally came through. So women as like kind of, we y'all know it, really the, ba- not the backbone, the front bone, the head, the <laughs> collarbone, the neck bone, the, all of it, right? So I, Jen, how do we understand about what is going to be written about this moment, this moment of 2020? How do we hold space for what we're living through, which is like extraordinarily historical. And yet at the same time, all of us are, you know, in some ways struggling to breathe because it's all so much. And yet it is extraordinary history too Mm. for women. It is. I mean, I think ever since the 2016 election, what we've seen time and time again is that women have been the first responders to a democracy in crisis. Mm. To march, to show up, to vote, to run for office, to stop family separations, to protect our health care, to march for Black lives. I mean, on and on and on. And and I believe that women are going to be the front bone, (laughs) backbone, (laughs) whatever bone of our movement to take back our country. And, you know, we are a majority and even though we're not a monolith, I think we share majoritarian values with people in this country that see what is happening in this country as deeply, deeply wrong and in the wrong direction. And and so I think, you know, women are organizing like crazy in every community across this country uh, to both stop the pain, speak the truth, and put us on course to the country we know we deserve. Mm. So that's the history that I think will be written about this period of time. Mm-hmm. And we're showing up in different ways and different aspects of the movement. But you know, Maria, every single social change movement in this country is powered by women. <laughs> the history will be written, you know, that story I think is going to be written because women are telling that story. Because when you said that, Ajahn, I was like, yeah, but everyone's like white and male that runs like news outlets. But then we got in the thick, we got sunstorm. We got, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's because the voices are also owning that story. Finally, like literally saying we're going to tell it, get out of the way. So Alicia, how about you? How are you seeing this moment in history? Because Perdón, with all due respect, Alicia, I mean, I, Jen, too. Mm-hmm. The both of you are badasses. 
I mean, I remember when I had to sit down on a stage <laughs> next to Alicia and I was like, she, you, she helped to create Black Lives Matter. <laughs> and she's such a sweetie. She's the best. She's so cool. And I love her. And she's super humble and so awesome. Oh, y'all are the best. Y'all are the best. <laughs> so how do you understand this moment in history as a history maker, as a woman history maker? I mean, I really agree with iGen and... I think that we will look back on this moment five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and we will see it as a great turning point in this country. And that is exactly the reason why all of us are needed. All of our hands are needed to lift this moment and catapult it right into um, the future. Mm. Of course, it could go the other way, right? If folks decide that mm -hmm. it's not worth it, that they can't make a difference, that their voice doesn't matter. But I always say, you know, everything that we leave on the table, we leave for somebody else to eat. Mm. And <laughs> as deeply concerning as it is to me, the ways in which our communities are left out time and time again, whether it be women, whether it be black folks, whether it be Latinos, right? We, I mean, the list goes on and on. What's real is that that doesn't shift if less and less of us participate. <laughs> the only way that that changes mm -hmm. is with more hands in the pot, more cooks in the kitchen, and actually seeing ourselves not just as defenders of democracy, but as designers of the new democracy that we all so desperately deserve. Mm. So I'm seeing this moment in history as one where I want to be able to look back five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when my kids ask me, well, what were you doing at that pivotal moment? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to be like my grandma, right? My grandma, when King was marching, she was like, I didn't mess with King. I didn't do any of that. I wasn't down for that, right? Yeah. I want to be able to say to my kids or my grandkids, you know, I fought like hell for me and I fought like hell for you. And there was a time when we didn't have equal rights. There was a time when our lives were not valued and respected. But then we put in work and we marched and we fought and we organized and we moved and changed rules. Mm. And that's why we are where we are today. That's, I think, the moment that we're in right now. So let's talk about the organizing the both of you do, which is this ongoing movement to get rights for domestic workers in the United States. And like you said, Aijan, the pandemic has really, really exposed the inequity that domestic workers are facing. And actually, we talked to you on the show before about the invisibility of domestic care workers and the organization you both helped found, which is called Care in Action, which is to get domestic workers to run for office. So... That organization has also endorsed a number of women of color who are running for office, including Alexis Rogers, yes. who is part of Care in Action, and who we had on In the Thick with you, Aijan. And now Alexis is running for mayor of Richmond, Virginia, which I'm like, there you go. <laughs> you know, women taking action. I'm like, there it is. So let's look at the latest. Last week in California, Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill that would provide protections for domestic workers and recognize them as real employees under the Division of Occupational Safety and Health. So, hello. And we also know that only an estimated 5% of domestic workers are actually paid on the books. 
and most of them are undocumented immigrants. So the lack of these work protections is incredibly harmful. Eisen, talk to us about the latest with Care in Action and the domestic worker movement in this time. Mm. Well, domestic workers, like I've said, they've been so hard hit by this pandemic. It's, I mean, we came into the crisis with a workforce that was earning poverty wages, literally no money to stock up on groceries or supplies like everyone did at the top of the pandemic, early, early losses of jobs and income, food insecurity came up super early for our workforce. In March, we had a, a meeting where a domestic worker held up her phone uh, to the Zoom screen to show us that there was literally one cent left in her bank account. So the level of crisis, economic crisis, and health crisis for the workers who continued to work through the pandemic while their kids were home from school. It's just been really devastating. At the same time, we're in this moment where all of the sudden, all of these workers like domestic workers who've been invisible to us <laughs> are suddenly being applauded as essential and recognized for the essential services that they provide, keeping us safe. And so we're having this awakening both to the incredible epidemic of low-wage work in this country that you know plagued us and created a situation where millions of essential workers have been devalued, um, who are mostly women and people of color, by the way, right? We have a moment where we have this awakening to try to actually address low-wage work in America in a whole new way, make our safety net safe for the millions of workers like domestic workers who just have not been saved in this crisis, and also to invest in our care economy, right? So many people are struggling with childcare. Their kids are home from school trying to navigate online learning. Yeah. Their parents are getting evacuated from nursing homes and they can't visit them in assisted living facilities because of the pandemic. All of a sudden, people are realizing that our lack of a care infrastructure is a huge, huge health, mm -hmm. safety, and well-being economic crisis for the whole country. Yeah. So this whole context actually makes me more hopeful mm. than ever before that we can address the conditions that have plagued domestic workers literally for generations. Right. But it's not inevitable. Like Alicia said, it requires organizing. It requires fighting. I mean, clearly we're still seeing setbacks like the governor's veto last week. And we're seeing incredible growth in our membership. Domestic workers are coming together and organizing together, calling members of Congress, protesting, engaging in our democracy in new ways every single day. So I feel like we are growing in our power as a movement and the opening in our public consciousness to actually address some of these longstanding injustices mm. has never been wider. Huh. So that is the update. And I think having an organization like Care in Action that's explicitly mobilizing yeah. women of color voters that no one ever cared about before. Right to vote, to engage, to organize, to run for office. I mean, that is that is a huge part of what is going to be required to win. So just a little 
data point, this is via the 19th, more women left the labor force than the total number of jobs the country added last month. Wow. About 865,000 women dropped out of the workforce compared to 216,000 men. Wow. So, and, and I think there's a whole other thing, which is that women, while we love being with our families, I do think that women are picking up all that slack. We're doing the da 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 da, and then it's like the triple, you know. For sure. Because, you know, also I feel like, like this is coming out of me. I want to be a bit of a mom and a caretaker, even if it's killing me, but I want to be like, I'll take care of you because I have one more thing to prove that I'm a good mother and caretaker. Okay. Um, <laughs> not that women feel like we have to prove anything all the time, but okay. I like your mom voice. Right. So we've been talking about what activism looks like in an election year during a pandemic. We're also talking about this movement to defend black lives. And Alicia, you know, the way in which the movement has grown, but on Friday, grand jury recordings of the Breonna Taylor case were released to the public, showing a lot of confusion and misinformation in the proceedings. According to the Louisville Courier Journal's analysis of the interviews, they found that investigators uh -huh, failed to press the officers on inconsistencies in their statements. That's like a basic. And that Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron omitted crucial information about the case. No surprise. Alicia, as one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, you talked on your podcast about how you've watched this movement grow. I think sometimes in organizing, we plant seeds that we can't actually imagine what the fruit will be. Mm -hmm. That was true for me, for sure, with Black Lives Matter. Um, we planted a seed seven years ago. and imagined this moment, but couldn't see it mm. and maybe didn't expect it in this way. I mean, we've been through a few rounds of this now, right? But this one is the largest and it's the most widespread. Maybe we thought we were planting like a, like a beet, you know what I mean? Like a thing that grows underground, but then the leaves grow up on top and you can eat those too. But really you're like trying to wait for the beet to grow. And I think what we ended up with for all you gardeners out there who are listening is like pole beans or like squash, you know, the things that just like <laughs> once they go, they go. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you have a lot of harvest. You're like, whoa, what do I do with all these zucchini? Right. OK, it's a thing. <laughs> So I love the fact that we're talking about growing stuff and iGen growing her tomatoes and, you mm. know, squash and all this. <laughs> and, you know, Alicia, when you jump in to help create Black Lives Matter, I mean, it's incredibly risky. But can you talk a little bit more about this notion of this planting and how, in your view, it leads to systemic change? Mm hmm. I mean, first and foremost, it's good to hear that clip again, because it does. It really does feel like the number one question that I get is, well, did you guys know that you were going to start a movement? And I'm like, absolutely not. I mean, we hoped, right? We hoped for that. And we just started putting one foot in front of the other, not at all knowing what was going to come out on the other side. And I think it's exceeded any of our visions or imaginations. And so when we look at social change and we look at transformational change, I think sometimes people feel 
like they can't see how the things that they do now add up to something bigger. And it is so important for us to be grounded in the fact that our actions matter. And if we hadn't kind of kicked off Black Lives Matter with a hashtag where people could follow a conversation and then from there built out some platforms where people could talk to each other online in a focused way, Mm -hmm. not just about what was wrong, but about what could be right. And then if we didn't also take those opportunities to dive into conversations that we knew people wanted to have, but couldn't find places to have them, and then translate all of that into action that people can take in their communities with the Freedom Ride that we did to Ferguson, and then, of course, then beginning chapters of the organization so people could organize locally, I don't think we would be here. But we didn't know, right, that right, right. putting a hashtag in front of this thing was going to lead to being now the largest protest movement in history. We had no idea. Dude. But wow. what we did know was that something needed to be different and that we couldn't sleep at night not having done something. Mm. <laughs> um, so imagine that all of those small actions actually blossomed into something so big and so important that I think has changed the landscape, certainly of this country. Mama of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine then what your action can do when you, you know, have, you know, red, (laughs) I didn't, what's the voting group called? It's like red wine and vote or something. Oh yeah. (laughs) Red wine and blue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait, there's wine and voting involved? What is that? There is. I know. See, that's a club I want to be a part of. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, Be careful, because I bet somebody might want to outlaw it and say, oh, you know, you can't drink and vote because that's illegal, especially if you're a woman. <laughs> <laughs> but wow. see, it's those kinds of things. I mean, mm. women are doing that in this election cycle. Black folks are doing that in this election cycle. Latinos are doing that in this election cycle. All of our actions, whether it be in our families, with our friends, in our communities, if we can get sharp enough about how to just start connecting those, not make everybody do the same thing, but just start connecting those, all of a sudden, all of these seeds become a garden that you're now eating from. So let's move on to our final segment, which we call, and I'm going to do my Univision announcer voice this time, Maria. Okay. <laughs> La ultima y nos vamos. <laughs> yes, oh, yes, wow. yes, yes, yes. The last one before you go or last call. I made a choice there. I'm glad you guys liked it. <laughs> you, you did it. <laughs> I loved it. So the opposite of that is talking about ways that women are transforming the country, which is what we've been talking about. <laughs> All those men with their voices. Anyway, <laughs> I am actually thinking, Ijen, about something that you recently said on a Sunstorm episode about the potential of this dark moment that we're in. We needed a pretty serious shakeup. Mm-hmm. The status quo was really broken. And this has been the biggest shakeup imaginable. I wouldn't wish it on us as a country. And now that it's happened, this incredible disruption has happened. This is our moment, right? Mm-hmm. Where all the things that you named about what's been revealed, right? Everything from how essential so many invisible workers are to how dangerous it is to just be Black in America. That's right. To how universally broken our caregiving system is, right? right. 
That's right. I mean, how many calls have you been on with kids crawling all over their parents going insane because they don't have the support that they need and and everybody's just struggling you know i think all of this has been revealed which means that we finally have the kind of consciousness the popular consciousness we need in this country to move the big shifts forward that we've needed to move for a really long time mm-hmm. so all right, we're like days away from actually an election. I'm wondering how you're thinking about finding opportunity for change in this moment. So that's the bright side of the last question that I'm asking you. The dark side is, <laughs> what will you do if Trump is reelected? All right, we're going to start with you, Ijen. Well, I've been really inspired by all the people who've been making their plans to vote and organizing in their communities and their networks and making sure everybody has all the right websites to check if they're registered, to get their mail-in ballot, to do all the things. And it's incredibly hopeful because that's what's going to be required. We not only have to vote, but we have to vote in literal droves. Literal, like there has no no ballot left behind <laughs> um, <laughs> is basically the the slogan. And I feel that energy all around and it, it it makes me feel very hopeful. And again, it's not inevitable. We gotta make it happen. We gotta keep it pushing. We got days left to go. And election has started now. There are a lot of states where voting has started. So game on. So we gotta get out there. And you know, if Trump is reelected. I think we all have to figure out how we continue to organize, to build, to find our lane, um, which is the theme of the season of Sunstorm this year. And my friend Marisa Franco always talks about, you know, you just got to make a play. The worst thing that we can do is become hopeless or cynical. And another one of our guests this season, Brian Stevenson, always talks about how cynicism is the enemy of justice. And I think we just have to remember that there are a thousand lanes. There will be even more lanes (laughs) if Mm -hmm. things go sideways this election. So much work to do to rebuild and reimagine our economy and our country from the bottom up and a million different ways that people can contribute. And we're just going to have to maybe rest, take a little break Mm -hmm. (laughs) and get back in the lane, get back in the arena and make our plays. Mm. Alicia, your thoughts about crisis, opportunity in this moment, and at the same time thinking about a very dark thing, which is Trump being reelected. Well, let's start there. Damn, she's just like, I'm going to start with the horror. Okay. Yeah. Start with it. Yeah. All right, go. I mean, if that happens, if he's reelected, if he, you know, decides he just wants to stay in power, either way, what is required of us is to continue to organize. And, you know, my prediction here, I mean, I'm not a fortune teller, but if I was, I would say that our work in this moment is to keep building the kind of movement that is so vibrant, that is so representative of the majoritarian values that we all share, that it puts us in a stronger position to continue to keep fighting and doing so out loud. And I think what we've seen from this president and what I can say from, you know, even the perspective of BLM is that in a lot of ways, this president wants to 
silence opposition and silence resistance. And so it is so important that we commit ourselves today (laughs) that win, lose, or draw, we are going to keep building and keep pushing to be stronger than we've ever been because our lives literally are going to depend on it. I would say the opportunity in this moment is that we don't have to let it get that bad. (laughs) So if we are able to focus in this next 30 days, plus, because I don't think the election will be decided on election day. So we should just think about this as a season, right? And we have a mandate to create a tsunami that makes it so clear that there is no doubt that we want something better and we want something different than what we have right now. The way that he will succeed is if it's close, um, if it's unsure, or if a lot of people stay home. Those are all things we have control over at this point. We know the tricks and the tools they're going to use. We know that they're going to try to keep people from casting their vote, which is why we've got to vote early. Um, We know that they are going to try to cheat their way to victory which is why we got to make sure that so many people are participating, that there's no question about where the American people want this country to go. Hmm. Well, thank you, Mamita. Thank you for giving us those words of wisdom and guidance. We really appreciate it. Alicia Garza and Aijen Poo, both leading organizers, women of history in the United States, co-hosts of the podcast Sunstorm. Thank you so much for joining Julio and me on this episode of In the Thick. Oh, thanks for having us. This was great. More soon, please. Thank you both so much for having us. It's always a joy. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Regalo Varela. And before you go, dear listener, we got some ITT 2020 election coverage news. That's right. Our production team is going to be live tweeting the vice presidential debate this Wednesday evening. I ain't going to be doing that because, you know, I can only manage like three tweets. But my team here, the team, they're going to be rocking it. We got you. You and I are going to be breaking down the debate on this Friday's Sound Off. Right. And we can't wait for those gifs or gifs, whatever. I'm going with gifs. So there, I'm on team Jeff. G girl gifts. No, move on. <laughs> also, if you haven't yet, make sure to RSVP and add this to your calendar. Our next live virtual show in the thick is going to be next Wednesday, October 14th. That's right. Maria and I are going to be live streaming from our fabulous homes with amazing all-star guests, Amara Jones and Jenny Monet. And so if you want more info, All you got to do is go to this link, bit.ly slash ITT from home. And we're also going to put the link in our show notes. Right. So remember, go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us because we love it when you do that. Also, you can listen to In the Thick on Pandora, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You know, we were named by Time Magazine because of you as one of the top political podcasts. So you. that didn't happen because of us. It happened because of you. Yep. Check us out on the web at inthethick.org. Follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at In The Thick Show. Like us on Facebook. Tell your friends and family. I mean, maybe Julio and I and the team had something to do with that. Just, just a little bit. In The Thick is produced by this fabulous team, Nicole Rothwell, Noor Saudi, and our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow, Harsha Nahata, with editorial support from Erica Dilday. Our audio engineers are Stephanie LeBeau, Julia Caruso, and Leah Shaw. 
Our digital editor is Luis Luna. Our intern is Sophie Davis. Thank you to Raul Perez for recording me. The music you heard is courtesy of Nacional Captain ZZK Records. Dear listener, we'll see you at the end of the week. Mm. Thank you for listening, dear listener. Ciao, ciao. Stay safe, everyone. Bye. So let's have fun. I mean, ish. Yeah. (laughs) Good vibe. Good vibe. Exactly. The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Futuro Media or its employees.